Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 82. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Instead of a bullshit approach. <laughs> Are you referring to anything in particular? I mean... Fuck off, Clay. Stupid <laughs> fucking cats. I hate when cats see that you've had... I, like an ice cold beverage and then the condensation is on the outside and they're like fuck that looks delicious i'm just gonna lick the outside of your cup or your bottle so or whatever here's a question you've locked yourself in a room so that you can get some silence to record why did you lock your cat inside the room with you well, i mean i gotta have my cats in the room <laughs> yeah it's funny i can i can totally relate to the dilemma of cats i think we talked about this on the past episode about how before you have kids you love your cats like they're people. You think of your cats like they're children. But once you have kids, the they're cats a nuisance. are just, <laughs> they're just a nuisance. They're just like furniture that shits. <laughs> yeah. No, the, I, I keep them in here because they keep, they add to the show, to be honest. <laughs> Raja and Clay. <laughs> they're our co-hosts. Yeah. And to answer your question, uh, yeah, there are shitty jiu-jitsu approaches, but I don't want to uh, make more enemies somehow. So... <laughs> Everyone's jujitsu is really good. Well, you know what? <laughs> Everyone trains I, properly. One thing I would actually like to do at some point is, you know, you don't have to call out names, but it would be fun to do an episode where we just talk about a lot of the wrong things that people do when they do jujitsu or when they teach jujitsu. Like there's a, a lot of really common patterns you see. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think I think actually it's sort of becoming... Uh, less common now to have poor training practices but that being said there are still I think gyms that don't know what they're doing and I think I think an interesting discussion would actually be like what are the the main causes you know that that attribute to a gym never changing their teaching style or or why people from the gym never you know you some some gyms you go to and everyone is pretty low level you know and then other gyms you go to and everyone's high level and you don't mean low level in terms of belt rank you mean in terms of skill skill yeah so there could be some high ranked belts but you know you roll with <clears throat> some purples and browns and you're like oh i think you're you know i don't mean to sound cocky or anything but just to call things how they are it's like it doesn't you don't feel like a brown belt or you don't feel like a purple belt you can kind of just tell that you know something's missing and i think a lot of it is the teaching uh, methods and also the instructor as a person because if they don't continue to grow and try to improve their teaching styles and their jujitsu and their strategies all the time then you kind of fall fall behind 
Well, there's so much good quality instruction that you can get out there now. You can get access to the best in the world for a relatively affordable price just by finding good quality online education. Mm -hmm. And I think that has moved the needle a lot where overall, I would say the quality of the average grappler and the average instruction has gone way up. And I think a lot of that is just that there aren't that many secrets anymore, but for the gyms where they still have quality issues and where they haven't really progressed, I think a lot of that is because they don't let their students train elsewhere. They have closed minds, right? I think that's a big part of the reason why you get stuck in that pattern where everyone else is really advancing and getting better, but your gym is kind of an island in and of itself and it never really gets exposed to outside stimulation and the people there are never really challenged. So Mm. if you basically keep your students in a basement and they're not really aware of what other training opportunities are out there, then yeah, you can for a very long time wind up basically having a stunted game and not really evolving with the times. And I think that's actually probably still relatively common, but I do think that overall the quality of instruction has just gotten a lot better because of the availability of good educational material. Definitely. I would agree with you. But we're not here to talk about gyms that suck and gyms that are good. Let's talk about something else. Well, now I kind of want to talk about gyms that suck. <laughs> I just want to talk <laughs> shit for an hour. <laughs> These guys fucking suck because... See, if, if we're going to talk shit uh, to basically the entire community, we have to get Rob on here so that we can at least throw him under the bus and say, oh, that was all just Rob. You know, we, we were just along for the ride. He was the one who was instigating the whole thing. Yeah, that's true. But no, what did you actually want to talk about? You had a really interesting topic that I think would be good. Yeah, so I actually kind of thought of this um, watching two of my students roll. And basically what had happened was they were in half guard and the person on the bottom went for a Kimura and then the person on the top started fighting the Kimura, which is obviously what you have to do or else you get Kimura'd, right? And, uh, and the person on top was, you know trying to do things to improve their position, like close their elbow, get their head nice and high and get their posture high. And the person on the bottom was doing just the opposite. They were trying to open the person's elbow on top and they were trying to break their posture down by, you know, creating a wedge behind their shoulder. And it was just this really interesting back and forth battle that we are all really familiar with. You know, the, the Kimura from half guard is a very common position. And then um, I was sort of thought, hey, like, that's kind of interesting because... Well, eventually the person on the bottom, I believe, got a sweep out of it. But there was a moment leading up to that sweep where the person on top was still in alignment enough to maintain a strong structure and not get their hand put behind their back with the Kimura. So I thought, hey, is there is there a name for that? Is there a, you know, a term for that? That moment where in this case, maybe it's uh you're fighting for a lever where you're let's say you're defending a Kimura and then at some point, there's like a breakthrough where you lose complete control of your arm or a moment where you kind of have to change your strategy because you realize that you now you're, you're kind of past the point of recovery. And, you know, f- for example, you might have to get swept and roll or something like that. Is there a name for that moment where, you know, you kind of have to make that decision? And then I asked you and you said, yeah, there is a name for that. Matt, it's uh, I guess you ca- called it the tipping point, right? Yeah, so I first really got into this idea when I read a book of the same name. There's a well-known book, and it's 20 years old now, so I'm feeling pretty old. It's called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, and it's basically talking about this exact concept. Now, 
not in the context of jujitsu, of course, but it applies. And basically what he's talking about is that for any trend, there's a moment where the momentum really picks up, where the trigger really gets pulled and things really take off like crazy. And it might take a while. There might be a long period of time where you don't see a lot of progress, but then all of a sudden there's just a massive amount of movement. And you see this a lot in things like new products or pop culture, you know, things can be around forever. And then one day suddenly they just hit that point where they just start moving like crazy. And that concept of a tipping point, it applies in jujitsu as well, not just in terms of how you train and the trajectory of your career, but even in an individual role, it matters, right? Because like you said, you gave a good example of how when you are engaged in a lever battle, there's that moment where it could go either way and you're both fighting back and forth, but then one person gets that dominant force and it just becomes undeniable at that point. And the mm. way you can kind of envision that is think about what arm wrestling looks like, right? It starts yeah. off neutral, but as soon as you're able to get that other guy's arm bent off to the side, it's really hard to come back from that. Yeah. So, and, the, and the greater degree that the arm is bent, the more difficult it becomes to recover because the angle becomes more extreme and you be, you become uh, more taken out of alignment. Exactly, exactly. And that becomes important for your decision making because you've got to understand whenever you're doing something, are you past the tipping point or not? A very common mistake that a lot of junior people make or even senior people when they get desperate is they can't accept the fact that they're past the tipping point and they still cling on to a failed strategy, right? I mean, a common example is like if you're hugging onto someone and they managed to pass your guard and now they're inside control on you and you're still hugging them from the bottom, right? That's the first example that came to my mind. Exactly. And every white belt has done it, right? Because it seems like an intuitive thing to do. But once you train for a while, you know that once you've been past, there's very little benefit in continuing to cling on to the person from the bottom. You got to start creating motion and creating frames. So if you still cling to a failed strategy, then you're going to wind up just making the situation worse for yourself. And where this principle really becomes helpful is if you are able to recognize that tipping point and change strategy immediately. As a black belt, I mean, I'm not a big guy. I'm not a strong guy. You know, I get thrown around a lot. But one of the things I have developed over the years is the ability to know if my strategy isn't really working so well and Mm -hmm. then kind of adjust in midair. And if you can do that, a lot of the time you can turn a potential sweep against you into a pass, right? Just because if you can adjust your strategy on the fly, then you can change the course of history, so to speak. And that's, uh, I think probably, at least for me, where I started kind of on my own doing things that I guess you would consider to be related to float passing, right? You know, just by by realizing that there's a moment where, oh man, if I try to keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to get thrown up into the air and I'm going to get swept. If you can kind of change and pivot in midair, you can really change the trajectory of the fight. So it's a very important concept, not just at the micro level where you're training with someone on the mat, but you can also scale it up to even bigger ideas. Like like I said, the course of your entire jujitsu journey, right? To some point, there are guys like, like Braulio Estima, who famously was a basically a nobody until he got to black belt and then just something clicked, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, his career just went up right to the next level. Um, that's a concept that applies 
kind of all over the place. And so one of the things that I love about this book is it specifically talks about how to find that tipping point. It's a really interesting read. Yeah. And you're totally right about, you know, some people going through a uh, a jujitsu journey and then it's a slow progression. Then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you know, sometimes I think the, the reasons can be not so obvious, but a lot of the time the reason are obvious why someone might improve all of a sudden, for example, maybe they switch instructors or they switch gyms or maybe they're just watching an instructional and then all of a sudden something clicks like they see a concept that was right in front of them the whole time but they never really paid attention to and now that's that's forever going to change the way that they do jujitsu uh you know i've had many of these moments you know watching particular instructionals and then your game is forever changed and uh improved because you add a really crucial piece of information to your tool belt you know it's kind of like i can actually quote danaher twice one time he said, um, hold on, hold on. Can you quote him in his voice? We haven't done that in a while. <laughs> I guess I should. Fuck, I haven't done it in a while. Okay, hold on. Hold on. I have to have a New Zealand accent and have a lisp. Let's just see here. Sometimes an athlete can be extremely effective, not by how fast they move, but the f- speed of which they can make crucial decisions. How's that? Bravo. That was very, very good. Okay. That was so and authentic. The- I feel like you're going to shank me with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> or give you one. Uh, and then the other, then the, uh, what was the other quote? I got so into my Danaher thing that I can't remember what the other quote. Oh, yeah. He, okay. Should I do it in the Danaher voices too? Of course. Oh, was it a good Danaher? It was a very good Danaher. I just, I just sort of mumble and speak very quietly and just do like a really shitty Australian accent. <laughs> That's all <laughs> That's I basically do. basically what he does too. <laughs> yeah. I firmly believe you can come into contact with someone for a very short amount of time and make great progress. Now, did he actually say that or do you just bullshit that? I'm pretty sure he said that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You may not be able to find it on the internet because I heard it on a video. It was, it's probably on YouTube. It was like, uh, it was, it was a background thing on John Danaher. It was kind of cool. He actually in that, just off on a, on a tangent here, I think in that very same, uh, video, he did a childhood story about knives. (laughs) No, but it was from like a childhood story back in, uh, Kiwi land over there. And he basically said that this like magician went to his school when he was a kid and did this experiment where not an experiment, but he, he did a bunch of tricks. And then at the end, he one of his biggest things was he would set up a plank across like two really high areas. And then he walked across and everyone was like, oh, my God. And he could, you know, I think it was between two buildings or something. And then he basically just, you know, he's like, do you, you guys want to know how I did that? And they're all like, yeah. And then he's like, he just he put the beam right on the ground and then he got everyone to walk over it and no one fell and he's like the only difference between this and what i did is well obviously there is there is a difference because it's high off the ground but essentially we're doing the same task we're just walking across a plank so he said that because he was talking about his competitors the difference between gym training and competing on the big stage and how competing on the big stage is actually you know, just look at it the same way as rolling in the gym and look at the lights and the crowd and, and all the noise and everything as a distraction. So if you can do that, then you can have a really good mindset for competing. So that was kind of interesting. It's funny how sometimes someone can just make an offhanded comment like that and it really sticks with you and can change your game. And that's one of the things that's really hard about learning really anything. You can put in a whole bunch of time and it feels like you're not getting anywhere. And then one day, just all of a sudden, 
you think something or you hear something and it just totally changes the way that you think. And I think that's kind of related to what we're talking about when we talk about tipping points. Yeah. And and I think it can happen at kind of random times too. Like sometimes it'll be during a roll or sometimes I'm even just thinking about jujitsu, you know, and you kind of, you kind of have that like light bulb moment and then you just know that you, you either figured something out or you just you felt something that you'd never really considered before. And it's like, oh my God, I just had an aha moment. I, I still have those moments even as a black belt because you know, you're always, you're obviously still learning. So it's, it never really ends. But uh, yeah, that, that was, that's kind of a cool thing. Well, one of the things that's interesting about learning at the black belt level is a lot of what you see, you've seen before, you've seen before many times. And so just seeing techniques again, often isn't going to give you a learning breakthrough. But I find that one of the things that really helps me is teaching or actually even doing this podcast, because it forces me to organize my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, It forces me to really think things through to the point where I can explain them. And if I can explain something, then I have a much better understanding of it than if I've just been doing it over and over mindlessly. So I do find that at some point, the art of teaching actually becomes a better learning vehicle than just showing up and doing more reps. And I think that's one of the interesting things when you get to the black belt level. But yeah, I've had moments like that as well, where I'm just getting stuck on something over and over again and could go on for months. And then one day a thought just comes into my mind. I mean, one problem that I used to have is I used to get tied up in people's guards all the time. And one day I thought, you know what, what if I just never let anyone grab me? (laughs) What if I just prioritize that above anything else? Like just don't let the person grab you. Don't even worry so much about the past, but I'm just not going to let this person get any dominant grip on me. And that was when I started to really shift my mindset towards the understanding of the importance of managing grips and how they really dictate everything else that you do. So for me, that was definitely a tipping point where my game accelerated much faster after that. But one of the frustrating things about jujitsu, and I think one of the reasons people get so frustrated when they talk about plateaus, is you can't really easily predict or control those moments. You know, you could, sometimes you have a whole bunch of these back to back, but sometimes, you know, you go to class regularly for months and you feel like you're just not making any progress. And then all of a sudden, one day you hit that tipping point. And I kind of feel like the thing that's challenging is you can't always really will that into existence. And I think people want a sexy answer about how to have those big breakthroughs, but Really, there is no sexy answer. It's just you just have to keep showing up. Yeah, I, I just thought of a new example of the tipping point. You know, first I talked about Kimuras and stuff. And then I, I did a great uh, impression of John Danaher. But the one that actually just came to my mind, it's actually a story from... I must have been a blue belt at the time. So this is probably like 10 years ago. Uh, do you, you know Morgan, right? <laughs> now, there's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Matt and I have an old training partner named Morgan back from when we were... I think blue belts. Yeah, and and I went to school with him too. I think he's a year older than me. But anyways, great guy. And uh, I remember training with him. Fuck, he used to do MMA and he was training for a fight and we were like wrestling. And his he's very lanky, you know, like he's very tall. I'm I'm only like five, seven and a half, five, eight. He's probably like six, three, like six, pretty tall, maybe even taller. And so we're just grappling. And I remember I had, I think it was a hip toss. I want to say it it was either a hip toss or a seo. And I was, and this is no gi. And then I grab him and I just like, 
I go into my throw and he is totally postured up, like hips in, postured up, does not want to get thrown. And then, you know, I got underneath him. Like I probably someone my own height, I might not have been able to get that tipping point where like, okay, now you're going over. It was depending on that person's understanding of of grappling and if they were caught off guard or not he just he was posturing so hard head right up in the air and then he and then I I caught him and I threw him and instead of going with the throw and tucking his head in he basically got spiked and it actually fucking he couldn't even fight after that uh oh, man. he missed he missed his fight cuz of that so I was just I, I felt so stupid I was like what the fuck am I doing going in for you know, but at the same time, it's like he kind of should have gone with the throw, right? And that, and that's kind of why I think learning judo and learning forward, you know, break falls and things like that, that's so important. So he should have recognized where the tipping point was there and just kind of gone with the throw, right? Well, that's actually one of the things that's terrifying about judo is it takes a long time to get good enough to the point where you're comfortable in that environment. Judo is all about tipping points. Really, judo is all about using your hips as a fulcrum and getting the person over top of you and throwing them. And that's why when you look at really high-level guys and you see those highlight technique videos and these crazy reversals, it's all a matter of understanding tipping points and not letting yourself go over the other guy's hip as a fulcrum. And if you can do that, then you can avoid a lot of really, really good throws otherwise. I mean, you see these crazy highlight videos of like someone going for an Uchimata and then the other guy just like bounces around and turns it into his own Uchimata. And you look at that and you're thinking, man, how could you ever actually do that in a live role? But yeah. with enough training and if you've seen that situation enough times and if you understand the concepts enough, then you can actually make those decisions really quickly. And this harkens back to the quote you gave earlier, which is that a lot of the time it's not about how fast you are. It's about how fast you can make decisions. That's way more important than actual athletic speed is the ability to make the right decision quickly. So if you ever encounter a situation where you are past the tipping point, if you cling to the same strategy that you were using before, it's not going to go well for you. You have to pivot and adjust. Yeah. And I've, I've mentioned before, you know, many times Gordon Ryan, but he's kind of the example that comes to my mind. He even says himself, like he's not very uh, explosive. He's not fast at what he does. And when you watch him grapple, it's kind of interesting because it's true. He's really doesn't move very fast. Like he can move fast, but it's not, it's not his main attribute and it's not really what his game is based on. He's very strong isometrically. Like once he gets you, he's really strong, but he doesn't move exceedingly fast. He just knows how to make decisions so fast. And, you know, if you've ever watched his instructionals, I, I really like the guard passing one. At the end, when he narrates his roles, it's just crazy. Like he tells you exactly what he's doing. You're like, holy shit, that is really impressive. And he just cuts through guys' guards. And it's really helped my game as well. So that's kind of one of those examples of where I made huge strides after I watched that that DVD specifically was his guard passing one. Yeah, so maybe we can provide some very specific examples here of tipping points and how you can adapt when you're past that tipping point. So a great example that we talked about earlier is clinging to the person from the bottom 
even after they've passed, right? That's a very obvious example is if you are holding on to the person, there is a moment where you understand that they are basically moving into side control and clinging to them is no longer going to help you. So you have to pivot. Another opportunity is if you are trying to maintain guard and your opponent is basically in the process of passing. They're effectively at that retention phase where you're you're almost past. Sometimes if you just continuously try to keep your guard, it's already a lost fight and the person is going to pass you, but you can use that time to switch strategies and maybe turtle away or do something different. Mm-hmm. And you can use that opportunity to change the game plan and actually make the outcome less terrible for yourself. So there are some examples when you're having your guard passed as to what you could do. Um, you mentioned some other examples earlier, like the Kimura. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about some of the other things on your mind? Yeah, well, I mentioned the Kimura and I mentioned in Judo. It's <laughs> Judo is basically a battle of, you know, that point of no return. I don't think point of no return is accurate because you can uh, recover just by simply switching your strategy. I mean, really what we're talking about here is, is it not broken alignment? Like it's kind of like the point of unfixable alignment, I guess you could say, or or the point of non-recoverable alignment. Because if you're attacking my arm, just because it's non-recoverable alignment does not mean that I can't recover. You just can't recover doing the same thing. You've yes. got to alter your strategy. Exactly. I have to I have to make a quick decision. So it's I guess, is it not the point of non-recoverable alignment or Yeah, that's one way you could describe it. It's Not always about alignment, I would think, but most of the time it would be, right? There's essentially a point where you are now fighting at a mechanical disadvantage. For whatever reason, probably because your alignment is broken, you're now in a situation where continuing down the same trajectory is going to just benefit your opponent and disadvantage you. But if you change strategies, then that might allow you to change the course of history. So like an example, you talked about the Kimura. A common mistake with the Kimura that a lot of people make is they try to just like continuously roll out of it if they're on the top and the person is trying to Kimura them from the bottom. That's not going to get you anywhere though, right? It's going to just open up avenues to your back or to an arm bar or to something else. So you have to really think about how you want to get out of there. You can't just play into the strategy that actually is mechanically stronger for your opponent. Mm -hmm. So So you say that not all are due to alignment. Can you name me one example of of the tipping point in jiu-jitsu that is not related to alignment? Well, in terms of mechanics, that's one thing. In terms of strategy and just general concepts of momentum, obviously those don't relate to alignment. Like if we're talking about things like learning breakthroughs or we're talking about momentum in your career or your business, that's different. Physical jiu-jitsu application. Yeah, if you're talking about actual physical jiu-jitsu, I think probably the main situation where it would not necessarily be about alignment is if the person is not even necessarily controlling you but is able to get around you to your side or your back or they're able to exploit you in midair. I think that's why you see this a lot in judo is because you can technically have your alignment in the air and then all of a sudden it's gone very, very quickly, right? So I think that that might be an example. Now, you could maybe still argue that's alignment, but I'm not necessarily sure. I think so. Because if you try to go for a Sayanagi on me and I'm I hip in and for a moment I've blocked it but then you can see me sort of fight the technique and then you can get whatever it is maybe you pulled harder maybe your hips were just a little bit under my hips 
all of a sudden you take me over and and usually it's a lot more devastating if if because that means that the throw kind of lags at the beginning of the movement so usually i find the impact is uh, a lot less forgiving when that happens i mean still is it not a matter of broken base at the at the tipping point i think the main difference is if you want to defeat that tipping point you have to pivot your strategy before you hit the tipping point so it's interesting because by the time your alignment is broken, I think it's too late. <laughs> you know, you have I think to that's see a good argument. There's a good argument. for Yeah. That. You have to see the alignment break coming, right? Like, for yeah. example, if you go for an Ogoshi on me, right, or a hip throw, by the time I feel you bump into me, right, you're basically already throwing me. It's too late. At that point, there's really not much I can do. What I need to do is I need to identify that, okay, you've got in way too close to me before I was able to, to shove my hips in. So I have to change strategy right now because as soon as you go for that throw, it's too late. So I, I think that in that sense, yes, it's related to alignment, but you're trying to fix the problem before your alignment is broken. Like the whole thing about a tipping point is if you're already at the point where your alignment is broken, probably it's a little bit too late for you. And I think a lot of the time when people talk about tipping points, probably what we're talking specifically about are like a lot of more momentum based techniques or techniques where there's a fulcrum or the person is in the air. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe not something that is is constant throughout all of jujitsu, but really, I think whenever there's like a fulcrum at play, you're probably going to be able to have this conversation about tipping points. Yeah, and you know, we've talked about some examples of learning jujitsu and having that tipping point where you make a great stride, and we've talked about some physical examples and how that pertains to alignment and everything. But also, you know, we should also probably talk about things like uh, what comes to my mind is um, businesses, for example someone starting a business, I think you can kind of make two ways happen here where maybe the business is slowly bubbling and starting to get some real interest. And then all of a sudden it just blows up and it just skyrockets and the person really starts to make money. And then, you know, they have to hire employees and the business just grows and grows and grows. And then there's also that, that person who's not as lucky, they start their business and then it's just not doing well and it's costing them money and it's not making any money. And then at some point, they kind of need to know when to hold them and when to fold them and either switch up their strategy and pivot or kind of fold to save further losses. You know, it's funny you mention that because this is actually something my wife suggested we cover on the podcast, which is like when to give up, you know, when is a strategy failing to the point where you need to change? When do you abandon your decisions? And it's a very, very hard thing to do emotionally if you're invested in something, is to choose to abandon it. Now, at the micro level, in the context of jujitsu, this might just mean, you know, okay, I've got to switch to a different strategy on the mat. But in life, you often have a similar situation where you have to understand when the momentum is just against you. The reality is that a lot of people think that you can just hustle your way through everything. And it is definitely the case that you need to hustle in order to succeed most of the time. But hustle is not going to guarantee you success. You also have to make smart decisions and make the right decision at the right time. And a good way to do that is to know when basically you're past that tipping point where the momentum is now moving against you. The force is moving against you. It's funny you brought up this business example because in the last week, I've heard two really successful business people not related to jujitsu in any way 
talk about this. And what they effectively said is that, look, you can be the smartest guy in the room. You can have the most resources at your disposal. But a lot of the time, success is just about events and how you react to them. Like if you're in the right place at the right time and just all of the stars align then things can work out really, really well in your favor, right? And sometimes you can do everything completely right, but just due to the fact that the circumstance was not right, you don't get that momentum. You know, maybe you make a product that's really innovative, but the world just isn't ready for it. And then 10 years later, someone else does the same thing and suddenly the world's ready for it and they get super successful. And that's a really frustrating thing as a business owner. When you see someone else succeed doing something that you tried to do and failed at. And the reality, though, is that a lot of the time, timing matters. Like, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. You've got to have the tailwind behind you because basically when you have momentum on your side, that's when you have the right opportunity to strike. Like, I know people who focus on making, like, virtual technologies, stuff that would be ideal if you want to get stuff done from home that you would normally do if you had to go outside. Well, you know, due to COVID-19, if you were working on a company like that right now, your timing is perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Zoom, right? The tech company that just became gigantic. And a big part of that was just timing, something that they never could have predicted. But on the other hand, if you've got a business that's running in the opposite direction and you've got all of the world against you because it's just not the right time, that's when you have to adjust your strategy. You can often wind up making things a lot worse by just continuing to fight the inevitable. So yeah, as a business, I mean, that's a great point. Like I know people who have been basically stuck on a treadmill with their business for decades. They've made no progress in 20 years simply because they just haven't been able to strike out and make that thing that actually gets traction. And unfortunately, you know, no matter how smart you are, there's really no good way to predict whether you're in the right place and at the right time. I mean, you can try to predict it, but the reality is more people fail at that than succeed. And I think, frankly, if you're able to predict the future, you're probably more lucky than you are smart. Yeah, it's funny you bring up the COVID-19 thing and and the online like Zoom explosion. Like it's everyone's using Zoom right now, or, or at least they were during the lockdown. It was super popular. I was actually talking to my computer guy about that today, how Zoom was kind of in the right place at the right time. Uh, I was going to ask you because uh, a few minutes ago, you were talking about how, oh, you could make all the right choices, but things just didn't work out in your favor. And I was going to say, you know, well, if that's the case, then did you make all the right choices? But then I think about people who I know who lost their gym to COVID-19 and they were kind of on the up and up. But I guess because of the the rent or whatever, even though they were doing kind of good, they they still kind of had to fold their business. So yes, it is an unforeseen thing like COVID-19 that happened. But on the other hand, you know, well, did they do the right thing then? Maybe the right thing should have been don't go to that location. Maybe have a hum more humble beginning or, or you know, uh, like in my case, before I became a full-time jiu-jitsu instructor, there were years where I did full-time jiu-jitsu and cooking and, and that was really hard. So like, Instead of me just jumping ship and do, and just doing jujitsu and taking debt and, you know, stressing for a few years there, I just said, no, I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to work really hard, but just play it safe. And because of that decision, I was totally fine. I totally get where you're coming from. And there's a quote from Warren Buffett about this, where he says that, 
you learn who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. <laughs> and basically what he's saying is in salad times when everything is all good and everyone's happy, you can get by making a lot of mistakes because you have the momentum on your side and that can actually cover up for some shortcomings in your strategy. But then when things go sour, that's when you really understand actually who who is doing things the right way all along. You look right now actually at the stock market and it's fascinating because at least in in some capacity, it really doesn't make sense. I mean, there's companies out there that are going up and up and up and up and up in value, and they're making like no money. (laughs) And they're not even projected to make money for a long time, but there's just so much mania behind them. There's so much momentum behind them that they're just, they're being carried by that wind. And eventually, you know, there's going to be a reckoning and probably the companies that were not doing things the right way and were not being smart with their money, they're going to suffer for that. So, but that said though, a lot of people are going to get rich in the, in the meantime, right? Like there's a lot of companies right now with crazy, crazy valuations that are not making money. And that's actually kind of weird when you think about it. And a lot of it is just about timing, right? If you're in the Mm -hmm. right place at the right time, then you can position yourself in such a way that you have all of the cards in your hand, right? But, and there's really, I don't think any good way to know that that's going to happen. I think really the only thing you can do is take as many swings at the plate as you can, right? You know, they say that you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And I think that if you look at people who are successful, yes, some people, they hit it out of the park the first time. That's awesome. But a lot of people, they fail over and over and over again until eventually they have that one success that was just in the right place at the right time. And that factor makes such a difference if you want to get critical momentum on a on a big initiative. But to your to your point, on the other hand, you can't always control the bad things that are going to happen to you. And that's when you have to make that decision as to whether you stick it out or you pivot. And a lot of that, to your point, is going to depend on what your current situation is when the bad thing happens. You know, the example you brought up, if COVID-19 happens and it's going to dramatically impact your business, but you've got a significant amount of money in the bank because you were just really smart about managing your expenses and not over leveraging yourself, then you might be relatively well positioned to just sit it out and just wait it out. But a lot of people are not going to be in that situation. And they, for them, the smart decision might be, hey, it's time to fold. It's time to close shop. Now, that doesn't mean, to your point, that they did things right before, right? In fact, probably the reason they got there is because at some point, they might have made a mistake or they might have taken on more risk than they probably should have. But at that point, when the bad thing happens, that's when they've got to decide, like, okay, what do I do? Do I just declare bankruptcy and close the business? Or do I, like, sell my house and all of my possessions to try to float this business and then possibly wind up having absolutely nothing, right? Like, it's a it's a very, very challenging thing to do when your baby's on the line and this business that you work so hard for is under attack, but you do have to know that some battles are worth walking away from. You don't necessarily want to fight a battle when the odds of winning are not in your favor. Yeah, good point. I mean, it it helps to be in the right place at the right time, but it helps even more if you're in the right place at the right time and you're good at making decisions and pivoting 
and reacting. And, and I think jujitsu is a lot of that as well. You know, the opportunities are all right in front of you. It's just a matter of, you know, recognizing when they're going to happen and then making the right choices. You know, mm-hmm. any, mm-hmm. anyone can win. It's, it, it really is about chess moves in terms of jujitsu, but also in business. If it's my dream to have this really big, great gym, you know, and I, I open it up and then I'm kind of in the red for many years and then I'm starting to dig myself out and then, oh, great, we're great. We're gaining momentum. And now we're starting to really get some momentum and things are going great and then all of a sudden COVID happens and then all the, all the momentum that that's taken years to accumulate is now gone and uh you know I, I possibly could go under and when it starts again who knows maybe maybe I have I do have to fold you know while that happened you could say yes COVID is uncontrollable but on the other hand it's like but your business is kind of built on a foundation of risk and greed, really, and 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 a desire for status. When if you have a modest beginning and you make smart decisions and you're safe about your money, then you don't have that issue anymore. So, you know, you could say, well, you know, COVID-19 happened and it's out of my control and all this stuff. I was like, yeah, true. But what was your foundation built on? That's a great example because you're talking about the situation where, you had the momentum on your side, you know, you were able to pass the tipping point, but you didn't make the right decisions along the way. You basically got where you were because you were just in the right place at the right time in spite of the decisions you made, not because of or in alignment with them. So when the pendulum swings the other way and now things are working against you, what do you have at your disposal to fight that crisis? And if you made a bunch of poor decisions along the way and you can't afford to wait out the storm, then yeah, I mean, those decisions are going to come back to bite you. So it's interesting though, and kind of an example of how, you know, sometimes when it comes to tipping points, things aren't always really fair because things can move for you or against you. But this is a great example of where Although you don't necessarily know when the good times are going to happen, and although you don't necessarily know when the bad times are going to happen, what you can do is keep prepared so that when the bad times happen, you can survive them. And when the good times happen, you can ride the wave up. Yeah. And I mean, in a situation like COVID, it's like, who could have predicted something like this was going to happen? You know, you could you can work your ass off. Sorry, that was my cat. Can you just fuck off? (laughs) You could work your ass off and start to really make some progress, not really make any money because you've kind of put some really big things ahead of things like saving and building your foundation. And then all of a sudden, like a huge outbreak happens and now no one can train for three months or four months. Some people for some people that puts them out of business. So if, if that happens, it's like it's out of your control, but you kind of made decisions along the way that have put you in this position. So mm-hmm. you could have controlled it. It's just now the uh, the repercussions are happening like years later, which is yeah. even more cruel. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because even within the martial arts circles, in the context of a single person's career, you see this too, right? You see someone who maybe has all of the momentum behind them and they're able to basically ride that wave up but then at some point, the consequences of their their bad actions or their their bad decisions comes out and it comes back to bite them. I mean, John Jones is a very good example about this, right? Where Also the first example that came to my head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in theory, he is the greatest MMA fighter of all time, and he definitely should be. But the fact that you can even argue whether or not he is, is 
the side effect of the fact that he is his own worst enemy. Due to a series of terrible decisions, he has basically stifled his own career. Like, you know, some athletes have an asterisk next to their name. John Jones has like a whole line full of asterisks after his name for the things he's done, right? And that's a great example of how you can have everything going your way and in the good times man that all plays to your advantage but in the bad times that's when you really start to see who's prepared who's done the right things and who hasn't yeah i mean john jones is amazing but the guy's record is like uh his record of fuck-ups is just so insane like all the things he's done everything from steroids to uh, running over a pregnant woman (laughs) running over a pregnant woman and and you know, just multiple times DUIs. It's it's crazy. Like, dude, yeah. you're super rich. Just get someone to drive you. What the <laughs> fuck? What do you need to drive drunk for? Or, you know, drive with drugs in the car. It's just, it's foolish. And the guy literally is like, I mean, essentially he's the Wayne Gretzky of MMA, you know, and, and he's making these decisions out here that just aren't intelligent. But I don't know. Part part of me kind of thinks that John Jones might have somewhat of a self-destructive personality. And I think he kind yeah. of, I, I, it's almost like he likes it. It's almost like he doesn't really give a fuck if he's kind of known for being like a bad guy. It's, it's a tricky one because on one hand, it's easy to get mad at him, but you also have to kind of pity him to some degree because clearly there's something going on there where he's not in a good space and he's got all of these incredible advantages. But Overall, like, yes, you can get mad at him, but clearly also there's something just fundamentally troubling about the way that he runs his life. You know, I I wouldn't want to run my life that way. So you kind of have to pity him as well. But, you know, this kind of thing can be very frustrating if you're, you know, on the mat, if you're running a business. It sucks when you're there doing everything the right way. And you see other people around you who are maybe not even putting in the work that you are. Maybe they're making mistakes, but they're having more success than you. And that's really one of the big, big challenges to any kind of growth endeavor. And in jujitsu, it's so obvious because what can you measure more easily than jujitsu, right? You put two people on the mats and one of them wins and one of them doesn't. It's very easy to measure who's better. And that can be very frustrating when you're doing everything the right way, but just due to someone else's natural gifts, they are able to surpass you. But again, though, Matt, both you and I, we've been around a long time. We know all of the stories of people who just they're incredible athletes, but they're just not really into it. And as a result, you know, they might have flashes of brilliance, but over the long game, they they burn out or they're inconsistent. And yeah, it sucks when these guys are tapping you, but there's something to be said about consistency. Um, you know, just over the long time, if you just keep at it, there really is a tortoise and hare factor there. I mean... Yes, there are people who are going to be naturally talented for sure. And that is, again, that's an example of just like having the momentum behind you. You know, you always want to play the game where it's easy to win. But really, so much of success in life is just continually trying until you hit that moment where you're just in the right place at the right time and success is easy rather than an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, the word I've used is foundation. You know, again, consistency to me is laying a foundation for the rest of your jujitsu journey. Like if you just slack through training and you only train a few times a week and you don't really care, then you're still committing a shitload of time to something like that. That doesn't, well, I'm not going to say it doesn't change, but like while you're in class, you know, if you treat it like you don't really care, then 
or, or you're or you're not interested in learning new things, you just sort of stick to your own game. It's like you're still putting in the same amount of time. You're just not using the time the same way. So uh, being consistent and setting good training habits and like really trying to push yourself to that point of discomfort and do the little things that you can do every day, like the little habits training when you're totally exhausted and things like this and accept and sort of look look for the difficult roles like all these things add up over the years and what what happens is you you'll be way more competent if you really challenge yourself over the years as opposed to sort of just slack assing it the same sort of thing can be said for somebody who you know i i know people from the a generation older than me who by the time they're 40, their bodies are completely broken, you know, and a lot of that, like really bad injuries. And the reason is because they rolled way too hard. I mean, essentially, they didn't know the tipping point. They just, they're they're doing jujitsu and then, you know, they go for something that's risky or they try to hold on too long and something's risky and then uh, they get injured and now there's way more wear on their tires now when they should maybe have some more tread on the tires anyways. Switching gears a little bit, just back to the business talk for a sec, like I I was wondering to myself, what would be a good way to make sure that my business is successful? Like, am I setting a good foundation for my business? Create one of the world's top conceptual jujitsu podcasts (laughs) as a promotional vehicle. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it does help. But I would say a few things that I think about are, first of all, define what success is. So like, what, what is success to you? Is your, is it, you want to have a, a jiu-jitsu school with the best students? Or do you want to have a jiu-jitsu school with the biggest students? Is it all about money? Is it more about passion? Like, what is your success to you? When you find out what success is to you, think to yourself, like, am, am I am I spending more money than I'm making? How can I make that profit margin as big as I can? Maybe it means having a smaller gym for the time being or, you know, using used mats rather than buying all new mats, you know, or maybe you got to wait to put in that shower in the bathroom or whatever like that. How do you keep your profit margins uh, at a decent size so that your business is actually making you money? And then the third thing I would ask myself is what is my time versus return ratio? Am I working 10 hours a day and not making any money at all, which is something that I've done before. And it really sucks. Uh, you know, back when I used to cook, it's like, you just can't make any money and you're putting in all these hours and work and you're putting your body through a lot of stress and you're just not making any money. Or are you, you know, in, in my case, I teach jujitsu a few hours a day and I feel like I'm doing pretty decent. So because I have a shitload of time, I can dedicate that time to other stuff and just feel healthier in general and be with my kids and stuff. So my time to re- return ratio is really good. So those are kind of the three things that I would ask myself. I think if I was, if I was wondering, is my business kind of setting itself up for success or is it just like a, like I'm living check to check essentially? Yeah. There's that whole hedonic treadmill factor where you have this incentive to buy bigger and get bigger and always be expanding. You know, if you've got a new house, then immediately your mind starts thinking, well, how can I upgrade and buy a bigger house, right? And it's the same with jujitsu where you start off with a small gym and immediately you're trying to figure out how can I buy a bigger gym? How can I get more students? But more is not necessarily better. Sustainable and steady 
and predictable are better because over the long term, that's probably going to win. And yeah, to your point, there are a lot of people who have just beautiful gyms, gigantic gyms, which are very, very expensive. And those are the people who are going to be most at risk in the event of something like coronavirus. And, you know, over a lifetime, there's going to be a lot of events that come up and they waylay your plans. And if you don't have any strategic capacity to survive those bad days or to pivot, then you're really doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, What what is that book, Tim Ferriss? Is it the four-hour work week? Yeah, the four-hour work week. So that's what reminds me of that is it's like we're talking about time versus reward essentially. And it's like, I kind of used to think that you work hard and you earn and that's how it is. And yes, there is truth to that, but it's not necessarily the entire truth. I mean, you don't necessarily need to put in a lot of hours if you, if you have the right job, you know, and, and you Mm -hmm. can, you can make a lot of money. And then I think that's, that's where, you know, you see the, the highest earners in, in the Pareto principle is that's where you see the people that can really maximize their time and, and have really fulfilling lives and have lots of successes because they're extremely well at setting themselves up, building an awesome foundation. And then once they create a business that kind of works for them, they start another business and then they start another business and and it just kind of steamrolls into vast amounts of success. So I think that that's kind of in in a perfect world, that's sort of where my life would be going, but um, definitely reminds me of the four hour work week. And that's a really great book especially for people who want to just escape their their everyday monotonous jobs. So this is an interesting thing because I remember when I graduated and it was time for me to go get a job, man, I took the safest path possible. You know, I just wanted a desk job and my goal was I would just, you know, over the years, get more experience, get steady raises, steady salary increase. Nothing scared me more than the thought of unemployment. You know, I just, I wanted to be on this treadmill, always moving up and up because I thought that was how you succeeded. But, you know, knowing what I know now and looking at the landscape and everything that I've learned over the last 20 years of working, the thing I realize now is that when you play it safe like that, you're not really going to hit a tipping point because you're you're basically, you're moving up little by little by little, but you're not really going to see those big exponential gains because you're not doing the kind of things that would create that opportunity for you. And you mentioned the Tim Ferriss example of how, yeah, successful people, they're constantly looking for new ideas, spinning up new businesses, right? And each one of those is an engine of wealth. If you are just working a job, then it's basically money in, money out, right? Right. You know, you get paid, you spend a good portion of that money. Maybe you save a small percentage of that. You put it in an account. Maybe it goes up with the stock market. You know, that's the way it is. You'll make something, but you'll never really actually see that big exponential growth where if you start a company or you take that kind of risk, then you create a situation where you're creating an engine of wealth, like a machine that ultimately generates money for you. That's what a company is. And the nice thing is, you know, if you have a job, you have to work to make money. If you build an engine that makes money, which is what a business is, then you don't have to work on that engine. And you can then focus your time on building other engines. And that's why the rich get richer, right? That's a big reason why is because they're so good at creating wealth generating engines in the form of businesses or investments or what have you. So again, though, I mean, I think really it comes down to if you want to experience those big moments of massive growth, the way you've got to do it is you've got to try new things. You've got to take chances. You've got to go outside of your comfort zone because if you just play it safe and just do the safe thing all the time, 
then it's very unlikely you're ever going to wind up in the right place at the right time to see big things. I mean, it, it could happen, but it's very unlikely compared to people who proactively go out of their way to seek those opportunities. Mm-hmm. So great chat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if we were to cap this all together, Matt, in terms of tipping points, I would say that the interesting thing about tipping points is in the context of jujitsu, at a mechanical level, you see these things when you apply fulcrums. But at a strategic level, it's the same thing, right? You see people who just, for some reason, all of a sudden, their growth just explodes. And from there, there's no stopping them. If you want to create those situations, I think the only really way to do it and you tell me if I'm wrong, Matt, is to take a lot of swings at the bat. There's really not much else you can do, right? If if you don't try and try repeatedly, I don't think you'll ever have the luck to to create those situations on your own. You know, it's as they as they say, you know, the way to get lucky is to try things over and over again. Is there really any other good solution if you want to create tipping points than just consistently trying and always just putting your best foot forward? Yeah, I mean, that's been a great approach for me is just uh, be as consistent as you can and and try and keep yourself open for opportunities. And we've discussed, I think, in the past about creating opportunities and making the most out of them. And I think that's really what sets successful people apart and just being able to make those decisions in key moments and make that timing really worth something. That's where you see people that's where you see fortunes made. That's where you see lives change. That's where you see people excel in athletics and all types of different things. So, um, yeah, when you feel that there's an opportunity, sometimes you don't even get to see it. You just sort of have that feeling. Uh, if you have good instincts and you have the guts to act upon it, then, you know, great things can happen. And I would say that on the flip side of that, if you're on the wrong end of the tipping point and you're trying to fight an uphill battle against someone or something that has that momentum against you, that's when your preparation and your good habits are going to come into play. Because if you've been making the wrong decisions the whole time and the only reason you succeeded was just because you had momentum on your side, that's when you'll be exposed. But on the other hand, if you've done the right things, then you might be better equipped to weather that storm. However, though, one of the things to understand when you're past that tipping point, if you're on the losing end, there comes a point when you have to consider changing your strategy. Because one of the worst things you can do when the momentum is against you is to continue trying to fight momentum that you just can't beat. A lot of the time, you know, rather than trying to stop the train by standing on the tracks, it's better to just get out of the way. So that's something to consider as well, both in jujitsu on the mats and also in your other endeavors. Mm-hmm. Cool. So... We want to cover the mental models we talked about today here. We talked about tipping points. Uh, tipping points are, as we talked about, at a mechanical level. We're talking about fulcrums. We're talking about how when you can push someone past a fulcrum, you can make it so hard for them to get back to equal footing to the point where they're probably going to have to bail out and change strategy. And also at a bigger picture in life, tipping points are the concept of where your growth just starts to accelerate. And that's when you start to see really big exponential expansion. We talked about consistency. One of the only ways that you can really have good luck at encountering these tipping points is just to try a lot. And by trying a lot, that means being consistent over the long term versus just being one and done. We talked about habits over results. Again, as you mentioned, Matt, when the tide is turning against you, that's when you really learn who's been doing the right thing the whole time. So you don't want to just ride that wave 
having momentum behind you is not an excuse for doing things the wrong way. You will be better served by doing things the right way, even when you have all of the advantages in your hand. We talked about return on investment. Now, you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about how, you know, if you want to run a gym, you want to run a gym that's profitable. And that might mean not necessarily expanding. And that is so critical when you're evaluating decisions, understanding if it's a good idea to move forward with this decision or if the juice is not worth the squeeze. And one other thing I would add is self-competition. It's very tempting to get obsessive over someone else's success and to wonder why you can't be like that. But just understand that as we talked about, some people just at any point in time, they might have momentum in a direction that might not even be due to anything they necessarily did. It could just be due to timing. The best thing you can do is just focus on your own growth, getting obsessive over success that other people are encountering, whether it is earned or unearned, is not good for your own personal trajectory. So Matt, I got a question for you. Cool. So here's the question. First and foremost, love the podcast, absolutely great content. I've recommended it to as many folks at our club as I can, and it's nothing short of excellence in both content and digestibility. Fuck, there you go. That's what I like to hear. (laughs) We're digestible. (laughs) So the question is, is there any place I can go to learn more about the Chinese buffet position discussed every now and then? Thanks, and I look forward to more episodes. Funny you should mention digestible, because the question is about the Chinese buffet. So... Uh, Matt, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, but basically this is not some fancy new age invented thing. It's just code word for the inverted back triangle, right? Yeah, it's just the inverted triangle. Are we even allowed to call it the Chinese buffet anymore? I think it's just the buffet. (laughs) Oh, is this like a racial sensitivity thing? (laughs) We're Chinese. We've eaten at Chinese buffets. And hey, and for clarity, Matt, why is it called the Chinese buffet? Because there's so many options. Yeah, see, that's not racist at all. That's a completely justifiable answer. There are so many options. I love those Chinese buffets in the States that have like food that is not Chinese and there's always an ice cream bar and there's like there's like sushi and pasta and all types of weird things you know, there. Now that you mention it, I don't think I've ever been to a Chinese buffet that is only Chinese food. And I, I don't know if this is <laughs> yeah. just like a, I don't know if this is just like how, you know, like chain restaurants, they've kind of got one of everything. Like for those of you who don't live up here in BC, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but we've got these chain restaurants called like Earl's and Cactus Club. And they're like, um, they're like upscale McDonald's is probably the best way to describe them. They're like, upscale mcdonald's they're more expensive better than mcdonald's well no no no. but what what i mean is like you know it's like a uh you know it's like a template a cookie cutter type restaurant right they're all exactly the same they they scale up like that the food quality is much much better but it's like the most inoffensive menu you could ever think of whatever it's literally every culture it's every yeah (laughs) there there is no unifying theme it's like there's one of everything you could pull someone in from like Tanzania and they would probably find some like dish that they serve back home there. So it's funny that you mentioned that because when, whenever I've gone to a Chinese buffet, they always have like concessionary food like that where it's like, okay, fine. We have like, we have some like hamburgers or some fried chicken wings and we have some ice cream. Just shut up and be happy. Yeah. It's those smorgasbords are pretty funny. The quality is not really great, but it's like, you're always just stuffed leaving. Well, you don't go to a buffet because you're looking for quality. You go there because you're looking for volume. Yeah, that's <laughs> right? true. It's, and I don't like going to buffets, first of all, because for whatever reason, like every time I, I eat one pound worth of food, I gain two pounds. I don't quite understand how it's possible, but it happens. Mm. But the other, the other thing, too, is whenever I go to a buffet, 
I feel like I'm in a fight with the restaurant. Like I feel like my job is not to eat and enjoy myself. My job is to make sure that I don't get ripped off because I paid for the buffet. Yeah. So one way or the other, I'm going to eat enough food that it justified going there. And that's not good for me. It's not good for my wallet. <laughs> so, yeah. so I don't like going to buffets because for that reason, I find it a little bit stressful. But anyway, to answer the question, that's why we call it the Chinese buffet. It's just the inverted back triangle. Uh, great position, actually, because... You know, the one mistake that I made for a long time from that position is I got so fixated on finishing the back triangle that I just got frustrated with the position because I got short, stubby, inflexible legs. So I have a really hard time finishing that triangle. So I kind of thought, ah, this isn't for me. But the thing is, the back triangle is actually probably one of the lower percentage submissions from the back triangle. You're way better off going for things like arm locks from there. So it is a great position because again, there's just so many options to choose from. Yeah, I agree. It is a great position, but I think I disagree about the triangle. I use that triangle all the time and I know really it's one of those moves where when I teach it, I have the, the most people telling me that they just can't make it work. And one of the main reasons that I think people can't make it work is the angle of their hips and they have too much of their opponent's upper body stuck inside the triangle. They need to just have the head and the arm, like ideally not even the shoulder. And the way you do that is by controlling the forearm that's trapped in between your legs. And then you kind of scissor your legs wide open so you can get like a new wedge on them and pull it tight. And then from there, the bottom leg you want to make sure is just behind the head. Like it might all, it almost kind of feels like the head is escaping, but you, uh, you definitely don't want to have your bottom leg like underneath their back, which a lot of people do because you can still triangle your legs, but you don't have a good angle. And it's one of those moves where like a few of the landmarks that I use to know that I'm in the right position is my hips are, are almost facing down, like on a 45 degree angle. And also the foot that is closing the triangle is pointing vertical. So it's completely pointed up. And if I yeah. do those things and I, and I set it up with that scissoring movement and uh, I know that they're not a lot of their back is inside the triangle, just their head and arm, then yeah, I can make that work quite a bit. It, it is a weird position because it feels like the right thing to do is to have both your butt cheeks on the ground and to be completely parallel with the person. But yeah, to your point, you actually, to get the right angle, much like with a standard triangle, You don't want to just attack it dead on. You've got to angle to the side, and that's what switches the angle such that you only get their head and their arm. Because otherwise, if you're just like both butt cheeks on the ground, then what happens is you wind up getting part of their back in there as well, and it just becomes a little bit less effective. But even if you do that, even if you make that mistake, you actually can still come up with a lot of other finishing opportunities because, yeah, you might not get the triangle, but you can always just grab that arm. It's right there in front of you. And I I personally much prefer to do that. I just find that to be much more high percentage, at least for me. Yeah. I hate when people put me there and they don't know how to finish it. And all they do is squeeze my head. Yeah. They just (laughs) squeeze my head and I'm like, well, I don't want to tap to this because it's stupid, but at the same time, I really want to get the fuck out of here and I I just don't want to fight out of it. (laughs) (laughs) I love training with white belts who make up submissions and then try to kill you with them. I've had white belts try to reverse head scissors me and it's very, very uncomfortable. And I'm in the same position because I'm like, okay, this guy's probably going to screw up my ears or my neck or something doing this, but it's not even close to a choke. So like, what do I do? Do I, I don't want to tap to this because then they'll think they should keep doing it. Exactly. It's like, I mean, I don't want to 
hurt my ears because I got stuck in a head scissors. I could easily get out of this, but I also don't want to tap out and give this guy a false positive and make him think that this is a good thing when it's like in reality, I just decided not to kill him. So yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of moves like that. <laughs> I also trained with a guy. I love this. He goes for like toe holds when you're on his back. It's the funniest thing. Yeah. And you also don't want this person telling people that he caught you with this move. <laughs> That's true. The kind of person who would do something like that is also the kind of person who, if they ever got it, would tell everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, for those of you who support us on Patreon, thank you so much. For those of you who don't, please reconsider your life goals. Supporting our Patreon is the most valuable thing you can do with your existence. At least I think so. And uh, you were trying to add more content to the Patreon account. I don't know when this is going to be released, but I am going camping on the weekend. And I'm actually going to be uh, training with Rob uh, in Nanaimo at his gym. I I actually think it's going to be one-on-one training. And I'm going to film the footage and I'm going to provide it for our patrons. So yeah, if you're a patron member, you can have access to that awesome content. Hopefully I don't shit the bed. (laughs) I I think you should just make him roll for 20 minutes because he'll gas out after 10 and then you can just berate him and make fun of him. And we'll put that up for our patrons. Totally worth $20. Yeah. His system (laughs) means nothing. It doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. But seriously though, um, thank you so much for those of you who do support us. It is Patreon that keeps the ship afloat and we do try to make it worth your while. There's a lot of good stuff up on there in addition to the free stuff that we give out here on the show. So if you want to learn more, just reach out to us. But if you want to support us again, it means so much. You can do it at patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. Again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. If you want to learn more about some of these concepts that we talked about here on the show, you can go to our website, bjjmentalmodels.com. We've got a database up there of all of these concepts, as well as a form where you can send us your questions. If you want to support us in other ways, you can pick up our merch at bjjmentalmodels.com store. We've got gi patches, t-shirts, and hoodies up there. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com join, where you can get on our mailing list. And of course, you can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram to see what we're up to and to get regular updates from the show. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Longer one. That was a longer one. Well, I don't know. We got to edit out a lot of your stupid shit. That's also true. (laughs) I find, you know, I don't know if it's really entirely accurate or not, but it feels to me like when we do these late night recordings, it takes a hell of a lot more editing. (laughs) I think probably. Really? Yeah, I think probably just we're like very, very sleepy. So anyway, I hope this was useful to everyone. I'm going to go to bed. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Take care. Take care.